0: Many people in the Biden team believe that the connection between the domestic and foreign is absolutely vital, and you can't have an effective foreign policy unless we also address these domestic issues. Trump showed that on the negative side. He was the first person to win the presidency, basically on a foreign policy platform. His entire argument was, we're getting ripped off by everyone else, and I'm going to fight back. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk.
1: There's a new kind of conventional wisdom that I'm seeing in the media, on Twitter, in the United States, around the world. And this is that Donald Trump will do what he can to stay at the center of public debate, that he will continue tweeting, that he will build his own television network, that he'll run again for president in 2024, and that he might well succeed in all of those endeavors to a very considerable degree. That we will remain as obsessed with Donald Trump in the 2020s, as we were in the 2010s. Now let's be clear, I don't want to rule that out. It is absolutely possible that Trump will keep a lot of support, that he will find ways to stay in the limelight that is, after all, his only real talent. At the same time, I think that the challenges to him staying relevant may be rather bigger than many people at the moment appreciate. One of the reasons why he won in 2016 was not any particular ideological position. It was simply that most Americans who don't particularly care about politics saw him as a successful and powerful winner. Well, now for the first time, he looks like a sore loser whose hold on power is rapidly slipping. And the more he rails and goes on about conspiracy theories and how the election was stolen, the more boring the show might become. In 2016, infamously, the news networks showed the empty lectern at which Trump was about to speak. Well, now at the end of 2020, the networks aren't even showing his big primetime speech that would prove supposed electoral fraud. I think people may be getting a little bored of a Trump show. When Oprah Winfrey started her television channel, she was the biggest star on television. And yet, the Oprah Winfrey network has struggled somewhat. It has its viewership, it's even making a little bit of profit now, but it has not managed to rival the big American broadcast networks. Will Donald Trump manage to rival Fox News with his Trump news network? I think it's going to be an uphill struggle. And Trump's long record of failing businesses and mismanagement in office makes me even more skeptical of its success. Finally, it is imaginable that he will win the Republican primaries easily if he runs four years from now, but the Republican party has a habit of changing the ideological profile of its leader. And it has a habit of turning on leaders that are not successful. In 2005, George W. Bush had 90% approval among Republicans. By 2008, most Republican candidates preferred not to campaign alongside George W. Bush. So here's the optimistic case, not a confident one, not a prediction, but the optimistic case that we may be spared having to think about Donald Trump quite as much in the next four years as most now assume. For this week's episode, I spoke to Thomas Wright. Tom is the director of the Center for the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. Like me, he's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic. And he's one of the smartest thinkers about foreign policy, one of the punchiest writers about foreign policy in the country. We try to think through what a Joe Biden administration can actually do to contain dictatorships and stand up for democracies around the world. Along the way, we also covered other issues from COVID to climate change. If you want to think about what difference it will actually make to have somebody who wants America to be the leader of a free world rather than Donald Trump in the White House, this is the conversation for you. Tom Wright, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's
0: great to be here.
1: So I really look forward to this opportunity to think about, you know, small things like the whole world for the next four years. Look, you know, Donald Trump was not the leader of a free world. He was in many ways the cheerleader of the enemies of a free world. There's not a dictator he met that he didn't seem to like. So I think it's easy to have a lot of hope about how the 46th president of the United States will change America's relationship with the world and how much Biden can actually do to show up democratic forces around the world and hopefully contain dictatorships. America, at least in spirit, will be the leader of a free world once again. But how much can the United States, how much can Joe Biden actually achieve over the next four years?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the Trump piece of it is worth reflecting on a little bit because it wasn't just that he quite liked Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or other sort of strong men. It was that if you think of sort of American foreign policy as a belief in a world where it is sort of classically liberal where it is based on this U.S. alliance system. Small countries, middle-sized countries have the right to set their own foreign policies and to align sort of as they wish. The U.S. provides guarantees or assurances about its own power by providing those countries of voice opportunities in international institutions and through international law. And on the other hand, you have Vladimir Putin saying, there's only two or three sovereign countries in the world, it's really about might makes right, is saying smaller countries don't really have the same rights as larger countries and, you know, we can coerce others if we have the opportunity to do so, that Donald Trump really believed in that alternative system. You know, if you think about America first and the notion that the U.S. has been ripped off by all of these obligations and has been restricted from using its power to exploit others. It really is sort of a more traditionally 19th century great power vision. And so you can go out from there then that he doesn't care about the human rights aspects or the values aspects, or wants to wage a trade war against the EU as well as against China. So that I think has really exacted a heavy toll over the last four years. And I think had it gone on for another four, I don't think liberal internationalism internationally would have survived that. So Biden, the way I sort of think about it is he is coming in with obviously the opposite belief system. He is probably the most internationalist president since George H. W. Bush. And Bush was probably the most internationalist since Eisenhower. So he really is sort of unique. He's had almost 50 years in this. He believes in the Romantic case, I think, for alliances and American leadership, as well as the practical case. If you think about President Clinton or President Obama or President George W. Bush when they came in, they weren't like that, right? They had a more sort of skeptical view because they had come from a domestic side. So he, I think, comes in well positioned. But the issue he has, and this, I think, pertains exactly to the free world point, is the election shows the US has sort of changed, right? I mean, Donald Trump got 73 million votes. He hasn't gone away. Trumpism hasn't been completely repudiated. And so the way I think about this is this is a reprieve. It may be a stay of execution for this liberal order, these four years. And what we have to do, what he has to do, is make as much use of those four years as possible to change the script to convince the American people that in four years' time, when they go back to the ballot box, that whatever they were concerned about wasn't working, that it is actually working, and it provides a more effective vision. So it's not just about going back. I think it is about reframing the whole thing.
1: I guess I'm instinctively a little bit skeptical of what you just said, because it goes into the question of what legacy Trump will have and what Trumpism will look like for eight years from now, and there will be Trumpism. Now, I think you can sort of split up Trumpism into a whole set of different constitutive elements. You know, there is the racism and race-baiting, the sort of extreme cultural stuff at one end, number one. Number two, that's just a sort of social conservatism, a reaction against the sort of cultural far left, which Trump also shares with more sort of moderate populists like Boris Johnson and Britain. There's a sort of abandonment of economic orthodoxy the sort of things he actually ran on in 2016, like protecting Medicare and Medicaid and things like that. And then there's, you know, some of the foreign policy stuff. But even there, I think similarly to the cultural thing, we're a little bit skeptical of the UN and we're going to be pretty vocal critics of the UN Human Rights Council. And we think that often bilateral agreements make more sense than multilateral ones. And there's the extreme version of that, which is calling in doubt the viability of NATO. And I guess I could imagine a Trump Trumpist 2.0 who takes a slightly more moderate stance on both the cultural side, emulates a sort of Boris Johnson type reaction against the cultural far left, but without doing the race baiting. And I could imagine on the foreign policy side, somebody who is less internationalist than Joe Biden, more skeptical of multilateral institutions, but who certainly understands and believes in the importance of things like NATO. So I guess especially since most Americans just don't care that much about foreign policy and it's not the biggest driver of a vote. Why do you think that this is really so important or that it really is so likely that we'll get another American president who, for example, calls into question the importance of NATO?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm not saying it will happen. And obviously, I really hope it won't. And obviously, I'll do everything I can in my little way to try to prevent it from happening. But I think it is a risk. So I think it's a risk we have to take seriously and You know, I think what you outlined yesterday is completely accurate. You could easily imagine a Josh Hawley or even a Ted Cruz or even a Tom Cotton being very Trumpist in many ways and doing many, many things that are sort of illiberal, but also supporting NATO, also supporting sort of this broader international architecture, perhaps, whether to compete with China or something else. But it's also possible that the nominee could be Donald Trump. You know, I mean, that's not impossible. And I think if you look at what he has done in the last four weeks, you get a pretty good insight into what he wanted to do in the next four years, what he's done in the Pentagon, the way he's reacted to the election and trying to nullify the results. So I do think that he would pull out of NATO. I do think he would appoint ultra loyalists. And even if it wasn't him, you know, what guarantee do we have that with the voters that are so enthusiastic about him that they won't go for Tucker Carlson or Donald Trump Jr. or somebody else. So I think that what we got in this election is both hope and a warning, right? And the warning is liberals, centrists, constitutionalists have to get their act together and to act with great urgency for these four years um, to try to really demonstrate that things have changed and the game has changed. Because if we just go back to the way things were and then you have a one-term president because of his age, and then Trump comes back and runs again everything could be undone at that point
1: so we've jumped ahead in a way to thinking about what'll happen after Biden's presidency and to think what we have to do in order to influence that and that's a very important question what is it that Biden and the United States can actually do for the next 4 perhaps for the next 8 years is the United States in a position to actually encourage fledgling democracies stop democratic backsliding contain dictatorships Or does the country lack, at this point, the power and the influence and the program to make a significant difference on that? How much actual difference will it make in the world that the 46th president believes in the importance of those things when the 45th president did not and even actively undermined them?
0: Yeah, I think the capacity is there. I think the capacity to make a fundamental difference internationally is present, and in some ways using that capacity for the wrong reasons Trump sort of demonstrated that the U.S. had a lot of power and could do a lot of things unilaterally. And so if Biden wants to do things multilaterally and in concert with others, I think he can have a big impact. My view is that he really needs to think about this, not just in terms of foreign policy being a series of problems that he'll address, like climate change and COVID and the rise of China and Russia's aggression, All of that is incredibly important and will take up a huge amount of his effort. But he also, I think, needs a broader affirmative vision um, for the world. Maybe it's a doctrine. Maybe it's just a very distinct sort of worldview. And I think where you, I think, and I would agree in this is that reinvigorating, renovating what we used to call the free world, right? Countries, open societies. Free and open societies that have sort of similar challenges and values, not identical, but similar in a world of changing technology, a global economy that doesn't work for everyone. And a rising sort of autocratic alternative that really thinking hard about domestic reforms and international engagement to strengthen that block so it can deal with these problems collectively. I think that should be his Vision. And I think he needs to make that case very proactively.
1: That sounds very appealing, but it also is a little abstract. So, what more concretely can the United States do, for example, to contain backsliding democracies in Poland, Hungary, India, Brazil, and so on? I don't mean to contain the influence of us internationally, but to stop the backsliding.
0: Yeah. Well, specifically in that, because I think there are a number of ways to sort of operationalize this pre world strategy. But Specifically on the backsliding, yeah, I think he needs to take a much tougher line. Now, I think those countries you mentioned are quite different, but I think that, and I, I've written this before, that the president of the United States should be saying to Victor Orban, if you continue along these lines and if these developments in your own country continue unabated and you erode democratic institutions and continue to do what you're doing, it will affect the overall relationship, including the alliance, you know, and that The U.S. and Hungary may not be allies in 10 years if this continues. And so it's not just a matter of symbolic reprimands or no visits to the White House, right? I think it is saying this material affects the relationship. I think with Brazil, I think that's a very tough case, obviously. But I think similarly, Biden should play hardball on this and say if Brazil wants a relationship you know, with the US, that depends in part on their domestic governance. Now, this is not to say that the US won't cooperate with countries that aren't democracies, right? But it is to say that the bar should be fairly high. So I see the strategic importance of a country like Turkey and why that's incredibly difficult to deal with and what Erdogan has done really domestically is just awful. And that should be a major issue. But if you take Orban again, I'm less convinced that it is massively strategically significant. So if he says, well, I'm going to go to the Russians or Chinese if you don't give me what I want, I think we have to call that bluff, right? And I think you can sort of play that out
1: similarly elsewhere. So I agree with that. I guess my fear is that for somewhat understandable reasons, in the countries that matter the most, those countervailing interests will pull the administration the strongest, and Yes, you can tell Hungary, look, if you want to just build a straight-up dictatorship and the country is honestly close to being that already, and that means that if we call you on it, you're going to go collaborate with the Russians and the Chinese more, we can survive that, even for your member of the EU and so on, which makes it more complicated. You don't have any great strategic importance, so be our guest. That already becomes harder with Poland, right? You can see how in a negotiation about this in the Oval Office of the State Department, the argument that we need Poland in order to help contain Russia becomes stronger. It's even more convincing when you look at, you know, India and the need we have for collaboration with India with regards to China. So I guess, how does the Biden administration calibrate? How should it calibrate the importance, which I absolutely share with you, to say that uh, this is not just a matter of carrots. It's not just a matter of saying, if you don't attack the rule of law in your country, you'll have a nice invite to the White House and we'll have a smiling photo op. And if you persist with that, then you don't get the state visit, but some form of stick too. But how do you justify that stick and how do you win the debate over the need to impose that stick when the competing interests and considerations for ultimately a related cause, the cause of containing the influence of autocrats in the world is so strong as it will be in Poland and especially India.
0: Well, you know, Poland a lot better than me, but I do think there's a difference, obviously, qualitatively between Hungary and Poland. I think when they're grouped together, sometimes that can be problematic. But let me sort of put it this way and then get specific. In the Trump presidency, he made the 2% of defense spending red line, and had that shape his view towards Germany and towards all of Europe.
1: So what you mean by the 2% is the expectation that the United States has had for a long time that its European treaty allies should spend at least 2% of their national budgets on defense.
0: Yes, and he made that a litmus test for his relations with Germany and France and others. Well, why couldn't we make democratic standards at home sort of a similar priority? So in the way that he made defense spending a litmus test, we would make democratic governance a litmus test. Now he didn't pull out of NATO because the 2% target wasn't met but everyone knew it was something he fundamentally cared about and it would affect the overall relationship. And so I think just rhetorically and conceptually there's a way for the president to send signals and to have others react to that. Now very specifically in terms of what the sticks might be, you know I think a very robust anti-corruption policy internationally and transparency will do wonders to undermine authoritarianism and those networks that fuel it from country to country. So there are a lot of things I think that a President Biden could do under the radar as well as more publicly, but really just internalizing that this is a priority and that it should shape choices and that, yes, if there's a massive strategic need, you know, to work with a country because of a common challenge and they're backsliding democratically, then we're all sort of small or realist, right, that will happen and should happen because of those mutual interests. But there are many cases where that strategic imperative is not present. And in those cases, I think um, there's a lot more scope for action.
1: So you've written in a very interesting way about a kind of debate within the most influential people in Biden's foreign policy world, about the relationship, particularly to Europe, but perhaps also a little bit more broadly, the Western alliance. Broadly, I think you've described it as restoration versus reform, as trying to say, let's go back to the status quo ante versus no, actually, in order for the heart of this relationship to stay the same, as my favorite quote goes from the Leopard, a lot, if not everything, will have to change. Talk us through that debate and the stakes in it and who's going to win it. So I would say
0: at the outset, I hate these labels because they sound pejorative, but I can't come up with any better. They're your labels. I know. So if you or your listeners have better labels after I've finished describing it, I would love to take those on board and change them. But basically the idea is this: that in Biden world, there are two sort of schools of thought within the centrist community, right? One basically has the same view that President Obama had at the end of his term and that they would continue in that vein, updated for events, right? So they will definitely recognize the role of COVID, Russian interference, Trump's four years, but the same worldview is sort of present, you know, a slight skepticism about American action overseas, a belief in globalization and an open global economy, a desire to pull back a little bit from the Middle East, but still maintain America's Um, role there. And above all, a belief that the relationship with China must be balanced, that they're worried about this great power competition frame. They want to stand up for U.S. interests and compete, but they also don't want it to become sort of ideological. And they're very worried about where it's headed, not just in the Trump administration, but also among some in the Democratic Party as well. So that is restorationist in the sense that it's Obamian, but it's not restorationist in the sense that they think nothing has changed in 2016, right? Everyone will say, yes, it's changed, but that worldview is the same. The second group, which I call reformers, are people, including several senior officials from the Obama administration, who question key orthodoxies or assumptions from Obama, right? So these are people who say, we got something wrong then, or we need to change something fundamentally from that period, right? So if somebody says something or writes something and it could have come from an Obama official in 2016, I code that as restorationist. If they say something and it's fundamentally at odds with a key part of Obama's policies or approach, then it's sort of reformist. So that's sort of the distinction. Very specifically, I think there were at least four or five different topics that the reformers have focused on. One is foreign economic policy. They're skeptical of free trade agreements organized around regulatory alignment, and they want foreign economic diplomacy that focuses on macro issues like international tax, industrial policy, cyber and data issues. So much more sort of ambitious, but also less free trade oriented. On China, they tend to be more hawkish than China, more worried about China as a alternative system of governance for the world that the U.S. needs to compete with. They would do so in a very different way to Trump. But if you look at pieces written by people like Eli Ratner, Jake Sullivan, Kirk Campbell and others, they question successive presidencies on China, including their own in the Obama administration, right on the Middle East. They want to retrench from the Middle East, I think, in terms of the overall relationships because they're worried more about Asia. So they wouldn't pull out entirely, but they are more skeptical, pivot for real. And there are other issues too. Democracy is a big one, right? They believe in democracy and democratic protection rather than democracy promotion as an organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy, and that should drive a lot of the actions, whereas the Restorationists definitely believe in democracy protection but maybe a little less as an organizing principle, right? So these are all sort of shades of gray and emphasis. They're not sort of fundamentally diametrically opposed visions, but they are nevertheless quite significant. So that's sort of the division as I see it.
1: Are you a restorationist or a reformer?
0: I'm more in the second camp. To be honest, but I try to write about it in a way that's not trying
1: to tilt the playing field. I think you've described the contrast very fairly, but make the case for reform of a restoration. Make the case for why each of those, or at least some of those adjustments, are right and necessary.
0: Yeah, so I can do that specifically. I think, generally, to me, I think the question is if Biden is different to Obama, not just if he's different to Trump. And I think Obama had lots of successes. He was a very good president in some ways, but I also think he had this sort of sense of optimism that if the U.S. sort of took care of itself, that the world would sort of fall into place, right? That the U.S. would provide leadership, but Russia was a regional power. We shouldn't overestimate the attractiveness of the Chinese model. And I think that that didn't turn out as he expected. I think these authoritarian forces are much more powerful than anticipated, including here in the United States. And I think we have sort of four years in which we really need to sort of make the case to the American people, not just in a communications way, but in a substantive way that the concerns they have are being addressed, right? And I think that the 10 years since the financial crisis have not been kind, to middle classes and working classes in Western democracies. While I'm a free trader, I don't think that that is nearly sufficient in terms of a foreign economic policy and that we really need to start to shape globalization proactively. I do see China as this overarching challenge. We definitely need to cooperate with them and we should talk about that in light of COVID, because I think that's more complicated than is often made out. But the relationship will be fundamentally competitive. And I think in the Middle East, we have seen the key sort of Arab states all go backwards, basically, and it's not sustainable just to continue as business as normal. So I think that Biden really needs to make sort of big choices and be more risk-acceptant and less process oriented and technocratic maybe because um, the status quo is not necessarily going to be kind to him right if it continues he needs to I think fundamentally change things so liberal internationalism or whatever you know he would call his worldview is seen as a much more compelling proposition to the voters even if he's not on the ticket you know in future um, years and also addresses some of these real broader challenges that the U.S. is facing from autocratic
1: countries. It's interesting. I'm very convinced by this, except for the domestic electoral framing, which is to say that I think there are all of those reasons to reform the liberal international order and play a more leading and muscular role in trying to re-envision it, In a way, 10 years ago, we would have said for the 21st century, I think that phrase was always silly and it's getting more silly by the month, but re-envision it in a way that actually allows it to meet the very serious challenges which have shifted over time. I guess the idea that this actually influences electoral behavior in one way or the other, or that in a linear, rational way will actually help to determine how the next American president thinks about this, It just seems to me that there's so many other factors that will determine who that president is and how that president thinks about the world, that this seems like a much more marginal consideration. What seems less marginal to me is, do we reinvent this liberal international order in a way that actually is capable of containing bad actors? Do we do it in such a way that countries in Europe and Asia and elsewhere want to sustain the close partnership and alliance with the United States? Do we do it in such a way that we maximize the likelihood of strong democratic countries emerging and taking a leadership role in Africa? Those sort of questions seem more important to me than the electoral one. Now, perhaps that's a moot debate because I think the actions you want to take end up looking quite similar.
0: So we should talk about sort of the purely international aspect of it, but just on this electoral part, I think I maybe have not expressed it exactly as I might have wished. I mean, it's less about the electoral part as it is about the connection between the domestic and the foreign, right? And I think if you look at it in that way, the U.S. has been becoming less competitive vis-a-vis China over the last 10 years, right? As we saw from uh, the 5G episode, um, but also playing out in artificial intelligence and other technologies. And that is not just an issue of jobs sort of at home. It's also an issue of the type of country and world, you know, that we want to live in. There is an overhang from the financial crisis, which I think is very acutely felt by people that politicians have not responded to effectively. There's this feeling that the U.S. is getting dragged into these conflicts overseas that people don't really know what they're about. And people, I think, are anxious about what's happening in the world. And I think what liberals need to do and centrists need to do is to show that they, too, understand that people are anxious about the world, that they too understand that what's happening globally affects them domestically and that we have answers to that. And those answers will make free and open societies more secure and more prosperous and more effective over the long term. Now, indirectly from that, I think you may get an electoral bump or at least you'll eliminate some vulnerabilities. But it's really about addressing that connection between the domestic and the foreign. And, you know, I think you see this happening in the Republican Party too. Senators like Rubio and Hawley and others are talking more about a role for the state in industrial policy because they understand it's no longer a level playing field. So I think there are opportunities there. But you are right that there is then a more purely foreign policy side to it. But I'm pretty sure that both groups in the Biden world really do believe in this domestic and foreign policy nexus. And I'll just give you one example. If you look at someone like Jake Sullivan, he's a foreign policy guy, but he's taken on a much bigger role on domestic policy and will probably take a domestic policy job in a Biden administration because I think he believes, and many people in the Biden team believe, that the connection between the domestic and the foreign is absolutely vital, right? And you can't, you know, have an effective foreign policy unless we also address these domestic issues. So that's just one personnel example of, I think, how these things are fusing. Trump showed that on the negative side. He was the first person to win the presidency basically on a foreign policy platform. People don't really think of him like that. But his entire argument was, we're getting ripped off by everyone else, and I'm going to fight back. And you know, He wasn't talking about healthcare policy or tax. It was really that victimhood of the nation. So I think Democrats or centrist Republicans or whoever need to do sort of the reverse of that.
1: That's a very interesting point about Trump. I have to say I hadn't thought about it in those terms. And you're right that he can make a strong case about that. Obviously, there's other themes in his presidential run as well. But there was this very strong sense of we've let ourselves be bullied around in the world. And now I'm going to stand up for ourselves, which is you know, one weird way in which Trump was such a European figure, right? I mean, that's very recognizable from the politics of small or medium European nations, who perhaps really have been bullied around and who have this understandable historical sense of victimhood. It's a very odd thing for the aspiring leader of the most powerful country in the world to say. Let me hit a few different issue areas. I mean, when you think about this domestic international link, as you were talking about it as well, I mean, obviously one of the main areas is economic. And, you know, if I'm thinking of one way in which the international order could actually improve the lives of average Americans, it is by dealing with taxation, by dealing with the ability of many corporations and rich individuals to hide their money and the way in which that makes it very, very difficult for countries, whether it's the United States or whether it's Montenegro, to effectively tax the members of a community they need to in order to build sustainable welfare states and all of those things. How much progress can the Biden administration make in combating tax havens, ensuring that uh, there is some equitable international settlement on this? And will it try? So I'm not a tax expert, but I do have some thoughts
0: on it. Happy to share, but they may caveat for in terms of all of the details. But I think this is a huge issue for the Biden team. I think individuals on the team have written a lot about this over the last four years, If you look at somebody like Brad Setzer from the Council of Foreign Relations, who's on the transition team, just read his blog over the last while, a lot is on this international tax piece. But it's more on the corporate side than the individual side. So my understanding of it is, is that when it comes to individuals, it's like the domestic tax code. There's all sorts of loopholes, all sorts of workarounds. It's incredibly complicated. So you close one and another opens up. So I'm not sure that they will try to address the international part of individual tax avoidance. But I think when it comes to the major companies like Amazon or Apple or others that can pay no tax at all or manage to construct these arrangements, you know, that is a big issue, and it's a big issue for Europe. Now there's an OECD process to do this, and Trump basically pulled out of it. So I think they'll re-engage in that process, but I suspect they may also make it a bilateral issue with the EU. One of the alternatives to TTIP, and I think TTIP is basically done, one of the alternatives to TTIP is something some of them call TTT,
1: the European-American Free Trade Agreement that was planned for a long time.
0: Right. Some of them say, look, let's look at trade tax and technology, TTT instead, like let's bring in other issues. So, I think the tax thing, that's something that people care about, right? People care about the fact that some of these companies you know, manage to avoid tax everywhere. They care about that a lot more than they care about regulatory alignment in the auto sector. So, let's have agreements that actually focus on what really frustrates people about the global economy and see what progress we can make. I definitely think the Biden team will make that more of a priority not just than Trump, but also than previous administrations as well.
1: Well, going through other issues, what about climate change? I know that this is obviously an issue on which the Biden administration is going to push both domestically and internationally. I understand that there's some hopes that China is really taking that topic seriously and maybe amenable to serious cooperation on it. At the same time, it will, of course, be this balancing act, where one of the main goals of the Biden administration will and should be containing China's growing influence in the world. And at the same time, you need a good enough relationship with China if you're going to make any serious progress on climate change at all. How do you see that playing out?
0: Yeah, on the China piece, which I think is just a small-ish piece of it in terms of how this will work in a Biden administration, but on the China piece... If they take action, they'll do so because they believe it's in their interest to do so, right? Not because of the overall relationship with the US. And the biggest mistake we could make is to say that we will amend other parts of China policy in order to get cooperation on climate, because that would just give them a reason to withhold cooperation on climate unless concessions are made, which would not be made. So I think that siloing these out and delinking them is pretty important. But I think the bigger problem for Biden and climate is going to be the fact that he won't have the Senate, right? Or, you know, it's very unlikely to have the Senate, even if he gets control, there probably aren't enough votes there. So the type of international actions that people are expecting may be very difficult to get ratified domestically. So he needs to think about a way to make progress on this that is sort of shockproof to the politics. And I think the way to do that is a fewfold. Number one, after rejoining Paris, which everyone takes for granted, work with the EU on a common agenda for COP26, which is the climate conference taking place in London in November, and then go collectively to China from a position of strength to have a really productive COP26. Begin to focus on the city and state level to lock in carbon emission reductions there in a way that cannot be easily reversed by the Senate or by a future Republican president. So do stuff betterly, but really try to lock in gains, progress, where it may be more sustainable. And then finally, Yasha, on the domestic agenda, if there is a stimulus bill, if there is infrastructure spending, to do that sort of on the clean technology side, which is a jobs intensive way of making progress, that's a part of this Build Back Better program, I think. So those are all sort of ways, I think, in which You can make progress in climate without requiring a major shift from China because of some diplomatic grand bargain, or without Republicans totally sort of changing their mind in the Senate, which is obviously very
1: unlikely. Well, one big elephant in the room we haven't talked about is COVID. You know, there's going to be real questions about the opportunities that gives the United States and other countries to redesign some basic systems around the world. I also have a sort of quarter baked idea about what the United States could do to carry a lot of goodwill in the world. And it's to do with the vaccine. Look, on the vaccine, no country is going to give up a lot of doses that could go to their own citizens in order to send them to other needy countries around the world. But you do have a real production ramp-up problem, right? I mean, you want to ramp up production as far as you possibly can in the United States in order to get that vaccine to people domestically. But of course, in order to ramp it up that much, you then need to be using those production capacities, even once you've reached herd immunity in the United States. Um, And so I wonder whether there's a way of producing a win-win here, where there is an incredible industrial expansion on this very specific area, in order to speed up when the United States can go back to more or less normal, but then using that very, very deliberately in order to make sure that those vaccines become available to countries around the world as fast as possible as well. So we don't just build production capacity for ourselves. We build production capacity for as many other places as possible too. We use all the first doses on ourselves, but we also have a kind of, you know, COVID Marshall plan. Anyway, what do you think about my quarter-baked idea and what do you think more broadly Biden can do to use this terrible pandemic As a crisis, it shouldn't let go to waste, as the famous phrase goes.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think it should be a major priority. You know, I think we now know that we're likely to have several vaccines. There seems like there's three, probably if you add on the Pfizer one, Moderna, and it looks like the Oxford one will come into it a little bit of a lower percentage success rate, but maybe more applicable to the not at high risk population. So I think it is a great thing that, going into 2021, that there's a U.S. president that's internationally minded because there's been almost zero cooperation from the U.S. in 2020. But the one sort of silver lining is that the need for international cooperation was really going to occur in 2021, because 2020 was more about the domestic crisis. So we're very fortunate in that regard. I think that after he rejoins the various forums for pandemic diplomacy, like COVAX on the vaccine and ACTA, which is this countering COVID toolbox. I think what you outline, I think is incredibly important, but there's a couple of other points I'd just like to raise about this. One is I think this is one of the largest crises to occur since World War II, and it really is something that we need to drill down deeper into over the next few years. But one question I've been looking at recently is, why did we have such little cooperation, including from China, right after 2003 with the SARS pandemic, China put in place all these reforms? The U.S. and Europe engaged with China to build capacity, build networks of cooperation. They made real progress. They had a lot of very sort of smart people working on it. They looked like they were going to respond in a more transparent way than they did in 2003 more rapidly. And when COVID hit, all of that melted away and they went back to the same practices they had back with SARS. And so that raises a big question about the limits of cooperation with China. You know, we really need to work with China on global health, but I think we also need to know that under Xi Jinping, that there'll be natural limits to that. So we also need to work with each other, with other free societies, on our collective resilience, on vaccine diplomacy, on other things. And I think the other point, Yasha, is that for Biden, this is a huge crisis. When he comes in, God knows what the situation will be like. But it's also an opportunity to try to introduce larger reforms to the international order and really to think about an order that's more responsive to people's concerns, how to prepare for the next pandemic, and how to use that economic recovery to lock in some of these things we were talking about earlier, whether it's on reforms or on climate change or other aspects.
1: Last topic, area. I know that there are ideas and plans for a conference of democracies early in Biden's terms. I think there's some talk of it actually being in the spring of 2021. I'm not sure how COVID is affecting the feasibility of that. Do you think that's a good idea? What could a conference of democracies like that actually accomplish?
0: Yeah. So I'm sort of torn on this. I've been writing for a while about the free world and democracy as an organizing principle, but I am worried about the summit of democracies. And I think what happened here is that Biden early on in his campaign focused on democratic cooperation as a key point, and they needed a deliverable to basically make that real. And so they latched on to this idea of a summit of democracies, which was similar to the nuclear security summit that Obama had in 2009. And they explicitly made that connection. And then it sort of stuck around. It showed up in articles because he'd already said it. And next thing you know, it's a key part of his first hundred days or first year that they have lots of people working on how to operationalize. But I don't know if they ever really sat back and said, is this the right way to do it? Now, my own view is that it is not because the definitional issues about who's included and who's not, who qualifies, who doesn't, are insurmountable. I first started working on this about 15 years ago as part of a project at Princeton, and we proposed a concert of democracies. And it just is a rabbit hole that when you start institutionalizing it, you get into these questions, which are just extremely difficult to resolve. And even if you did it, other countries aren't necessarily going to go along with it. What some of the Biden people have thought, let's try to have this summit in which we show we're dealing with our domestic crisis of democracy by bringing in all this legislation and voter suppression and everything. And that is a down payment to the rest of the world. Well, I don't think President Macron really wants to say that France is in a democratic crisis, that he's going to try to resolve these issues domestically in advance of his election in two years time. Other countries think it are in a similar position. They want it to be more outwardly focused. And in any event, the fact that Trump got so many votes, even though we lost decisively in the election, and Democrats don't have the Senate, make that difficult. So the summit, I think, is problematic. What I think he should do is make democracy an organizing principle of his actions. So work with other countries on technology, maybe the technology 10 that was mentioned in terms of a common approach. Work on counter-coercion how do you respond to countries like china or saudi arabia or others who try to bully democracies as beijing did the other day with australia when it issued this ridiculous 14 points declaration about everything Australia was doing wrong and needed to reverse, including sort of freedom of the press, right? So, how do you think systematically about global economic reform of the kind we talked about? How do you push back on backsliders? So, if you do all of those things, you don't need a summit. You can do all of those things, and people will wake up in a year and say, Boy, Biden's really making democracy protection and cooperation amongst democracies a key part of his foreign policy. Republicans do this. They sort of do things and have other people then infer from it. Whereas Democrats, we try to think about ways to institutionalize everything off the bat. We shouldn't necessarily try to institutionalize this. Maybe a D10 is fine. The summit, I think, is the right general approach, but I think it misdirects the energy a little bit. Tom Wright, thank you so much for coming on The Good Fight. Thank you, Esther. This is great.